I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, I'm a bit worried because I don't think we're going to be able to take it to a more informal level. Because we're going to be quite informal, yes. don't you think? Yes, I think, we are, of course. I think we should yeah. be. We've just been... Anyway, no, we've just... <laughs> <laughs> We've we just been, been talking about lipstick. How to put lipstick on with a mobile phone, which I didn't know. But now we're both feeling a bit lipstick. We're feeling quite lipsticky <laughs> now. So shall so, we? Should we get into the serious, yes. you know, literary head business before yes. we, you know, turn into loose women or something like that up here? Nothing wrong with loose women. Um, Tessa, I'm so thrilled to be doing this. I love, love, love this book. Um, will you start by reading us a little? I think. Mm. I boringly said, well, the opening is pretty good, yeah. but it is a bombshell opening, isn't it? I, it's it, funny, when you have a new book and you start taking it round, you don't know which bits you'll read and which bits will fall into place. And this one, the, the opening is sort of irresistible because it starts with a very big thing happening. But I am finding there are some, some bits inside the book that I can take out and read as well, but it's nice to read this. So this is the very beginning. You need no explanation as to who anybody is or where we are or what's happening. They were listening to music when the telephone rang. It was a summer evening, nine o'clock. They had finished supper and Christine was listening with intensity, sitting with her feet tucked under her in the armchair. She recognized the music, although she didn't know what it was. Alex had chosen it. He hadn't consulted her, and now she stubbornly wouldn't ask. He took too much pleasure in knowing what she didn't know. He lay on the sofa in the bay window with a book open in his hand, not reading it. The book dropped across his chest. He was watching the sky outside. Their flat was on the first floor, and the sitting room window looked out over a wide street lined with plane trees. A gang of parakeets zipped across from the park, and the purple-brown darkness of the copper beach next door fumed against the turquoise sky, swallowing the last light. A blackbird, silhouetted with open beak on a branch, must be singing, but the recorded music overrode it. It was the landline ringing. Christine was dragged away from the music. She stood up and looked around her to see where they'd put the handset down when they last finished with it probably somewhere here among the piles of books and papers, or in the kitchen with the washing up. Alex ignored the ringing or only showed he was aware of it by a little irritable tension in his face, always liquidly expressive, foreign, because the eyes were so dark, outlined as if they were painted. This effect was more striking as he was growing older, and brightness was leaching out of his hair, which used to be the colour of tarnished dark gold. It was more likely to be her mother on the phone than his. Or it might be their daughter Isabel and Christine wanted to talk to her. Giving up on the handset, not bothering to fish in her bare feet for her espadrilles, she hurried up the stairs, taking them two at a time, she could still do it, to where the phone extension was in their bedroom in the attic. The music carried on without her in the room behind. Schubert or something. 
And as Christine dropped onto the side of the bed and answered the phone breathlessly, she was aware of the sweetness of a tumbling succession of descending notes. This room they had made under the sharp angles of the roof held in all the heat of the day and was thick with smells, traffic fumes, honeysuckle from the garden below, dusty carpet, books, her perfume and face cream, the faint body staleness of their sheets. The prints and photographs and drawings on the walls, her own work, some of it, had sunk into the shadows, obliterated, and only the pattern of their framed shapes showed against the white paint. Through the open skylight, she could hear the blackbird now. Sweetness. Yes? There was some confusion of noises at the other end of the line, as if the call was coming from a public place, like a station where it was difficult to speak. Intently, someone was asking for her. Can you hear me? Is it you, Lid? Christine felt herself smiling pleasantly, sociable, even though she couldn't be seen, sitting on the low bed with her knees pressed together. She thought that Lydia must have been drinking, which wasn't unheard of. Her voice was heavy, slurring as if something in it had come loose. What are you up to? I'm at the hospital, Lydia shouted. Something's happened. What's happened? It's Zachary. He was taken ill at work. The room quaked and its stillness adjusted. A few dust motes came spiralling down from the ceiling. Unheard of for anything to harm Zachary. He was a rock. He was never ill. No, nothing so numb as a rock, a striding, cheerful giant with torrents of energy. Christine said she would call a cab at once, be with Lydia in half an hour at the most. Which hospital, which ward should I come to? What's the matter with him? It's his heart. He's had a heart attack? They don't know, really, Lydia said, but they think it's his heart. One minute, apparently, he was in the office at the gallery, perfectly fine, talking to Jane Ogden about a new show. The next minute, he keeled over, hit the desk, everything went flying. Maybe he hit his head when he hit the desk. And what's happening now? Are they going to operate? Why aren't you listening, Christine? I told you, he's dead. On her way to tell Alex... Christine paused outside the open door of her studio where the shapes of her work waited faithfully for her in the dusk. Bottles of ink, twisted tubes of paint, the Chinese porcelain pot with her pens and brushes, the pinboard stuck with postcards and pictures torn from magazines, feathers, stained cloth, scraps of weathered plastic. Creamy sheets of thick paper laid out on her desk waited for her mark. Primed canvases were stacked against the wall. Pieces in progress were on the easel or pinned onto boards. She came to this scene of her labours each morning like coming to a religious observance, performing little rituals she had never mentioned to anyone. Her strongest desire these days was to be at work in there, standing up at the easel or head and shoulders bowed over the paper on her desk in concentration, absorbed in her imitation of forms, her inventions. But now, the idea of this work, the fixed point by which she steered, was sickening. It seemed fraudulent, the sticky project of her own vanity. She closed the door on it quickly, then she opened it again. There was a key in the lock which she turned sometimes when she didn't want to be interrupted. She took out this key and locked the studio from the outside, put the key in her jeans pocket. The music was still playing in the front room. Was it your mother? Alex asked. Her heart lunged in thick beats in her chest. She didn't know if she could speak. Thank you so much. I, I wanted to ask you first what it's like when you begin a novel with your four principal characters there mm. or not there, not there. one mm. at the end of the phone another dead but still mm. on the page in mm. front of us and they really remain your four characters mm. despite mm. other interventions and other people mm. um, making their way through the narrative um, but just to start that boldly with those four people mm. what's that like um I did start with them. I mean, that is the first words. Most of those words are as I wrote them first time, so mm. to speak. I, I did originally, before I began writing the novel at all, when it was in my head and in my notebooks, 
I didn't know for a while that I was going to start with that or to, to reel back a little bit. For a long time, I wanted to write about these two marriages, these two couples twined together in various combinations through the decades. And first of all, I thought I would write about them chronologically. Then I thought that the strongest, biggest thing I could make happen to my four was to reduce them mm -mm. to three at a cruel stroke. And mm. as soon as I knew I was going to do that, I knew I couldn't do that three quarters of the way through the book. No. It would have been gratuitous, cruel to the reader, a, a trick in a way, and, and, and somehow wouldn't actually have the momentousness that it has coming at the beginning. Mm. So, so that scene, as soon as I knew he was going to die and then knew that the book needed to begin with that, the scene was in me. I had it. I had a picture of it in the place. And, and I, suppose, I suppose I was aware in an almost theatrical way, as you began with, Alex, of, of mustering my four characters mm. and, and mm. beginning with them as I, as I mean to go on. Although actually the novel ends with a, no spoilers or anything, but it sort of ends more solitary, actually. That idea of it coming to you and that, that tableau, mm. you've said before talking about your work that it often starts with something very visual, mm. sometimes even a scene from a, a film from or a something film. like that. And weirdly, I did have a scene from a film here, although when I say what film it was, I can't even think of what the connection is. It, 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 what I thought of is a very bleak film, was that marvellous Michael Haneke film, Amour, which does begin in an elegant French flat where the lovely elderly couple are coming back from a concert. She's a concert pianist and it's where she begins to have the first sight of her dementia. I mean, it's an absolutely unbearable, brilliant film. But I did have that. But what? what? I don't know quite how that connects to it, but the emotional camera or something of the film was useful to me. Well, there is something to do with settled lives about mm. to be Set disrupted. Yeah. In a place that feels like a well-lived-in place, mm. furnished with their stuff, with the history of the time in that flat together, and then it's about to be all disrupted. All thrown up in yeah, the air. But I suppose what also comes out of that idea of, of that settled space, I mean... Everything's got to happen somewhere, hasn't yeah. it? But that idea of a domestic interior yeah. is that your characters have relied so much in various ways, as we all do, on those kind of props of living mm. and the things that they say about them, the things that they mean um, to them. Mm. And that's a very kind of complicated canvas to work on, isn't it? Because in fact, they're also quite alienated from them. Mm. Just tell us a little bit about these four people and their kind of almost Shakespearean history, in a way. I mean, that comes mm. from comically Shakespearean. Yes, yes, in the sense of lots of swapping around. Mm. And, uh, I mean, so that once I had decided to begin, as it were, with the, pr the death of Zachary in the present, I mean, it's roughly contemporary with where we are, except that Trump and Brexit haven't happened. I, I think of it as set in 2015. Um, so I thought what I would do structurally is run that present story of what becomes of the three remaining when, when this one of the quartet is at a stroke taken from them. All the intricate, painful things that ensue between the three that are left. That's one level of my story. But three times I dip down into the past. First of all, the four of them in their 20s. And what we discover there, sort of, with, I hope, lots of comic potential to, to relieve the sadness of the primary story, in a way, is that at first it was... In, in the present moment, we have Lydia as the new widow of Zachary and Christine married to Alex. Then we discover, first of all, Alex is married to somebody else, and it's Lydia who is obsessed with him. She's been taught by him at university, and she's fixated on him, and she contrives a sort of babysitting scene where she really is they are the babysitters from hell and they, <laughs> they go snooping through the house and she said I've got to find out what their marriage is like are they sleeping together it doesn't feel good to me sort of trying to get in there and get hold of Alex but but then failing and she ends up with Zachary and Christine ends up with Alex and I sort of just I'm, that's not much of a spoiler because that's all early on and then I just ring the changes in a way and I go on 
playing with my two couples. It did feel like a very playful hmm. novel to me, and it also felt. And I know I'm not by any means the only person to have noted this, and I don't know whether it annoys you or not because we haven't discussed it. But this idea of it being a kind of reworking of the Hampstead novel, the idea that it takes place in this in this zone of kind of privilege and people talking about music and the arts and politics mm. and mm. worrying over there. I mean, there's a scene with a frittata. That's what I'm... Like, there's a crisis. Is a frittata one of those things? I think a frittata's quite a relatively straightforward, old-fashioned thing. They're not cooking an ottolenghi dish. True. It is 2015, you're right. They're not going... No. But she makes a frittata. She doesn't open a tin of beans. She doesn't open a tin of beans. It's true. Um, I, I mean, the Hampstead thing... It only a little bit of it is set in the past in old Hampstead, which is where Christine grew up, when ordinary people lived there. Nobody lives in Hampstead now. I don't mean in reality. I mean in my book. But and they're not. I mean, Christine and Alex live on a schoolmaster's salary. They're actually quite hard up. But of course, that doesn't prevent one from watching Tarkovsky films and reading poetry. I don't know. I'm just interested in people like that, alongside all the other people <laughs> that. That's what they like. Yeah, it's probably somewhat familiar to me. I like Tarkovsky films. It was um, interesting, though, and I know there's a, it's very vexed and vexing to talk about likability in characters. But when I started reading this book, and I was automatically at home in your sentences because they're by you, and I, you know, feel like I know, I feel comfortable and safe, and know that I'm in for a treat. But a little way, and I thought, these people are awful. I cannot, oh my God, what's, what has she done? They're awful. I mean, they're not really awful, but they are a bit, aren't they? They are a bit. I like them all. <laughs> but that's the business of the writer, is to have room for them all. And they don't strike, they're none of them running hedge funds or exploiting the workers no or bullying each other I, I, they're problematic they're all flawed ordinary people like human beings are they don't behave brilliantly but uh, yeah I'm disappointed that you don't like any of them well I actually Zachary's but he's dead um, but I did no I came to and that changed yeah yeah. Um, but certainly, I think you do get this, you do get a gender divide fairly early on, not, as I say, between the kind of very exuberant, generous, loving Zachary, who's mm. been removed, as we know from the picture, mm. on you know straight at the beginning. But certainly, I think as a woman, you develop, a, particularly, you develop a kind of distrust of this character, Alex, who is hmm. a purist, he's politically pure, he's artistically pure, he is emotionally withheld. Hmm. And we learn, partway through the book, again, I hope not a spoiler, uh, not immensely supportive of his wife's creative life. Hmm. But you, that, that's true, and all of that is true, and it's part of my portrait, and I'm interested in that. And I'm interested in how the things that one might like about Alex, that he is truthful, that he doesn't try to please very much, are also the things one might not like about him. Mm. It's, it's true and it's a problem in the book. It's put in there to be something serious, that he probably doesn't like his wife's art very much. But you can't command your liking. You can't decide that it would be nice to like your wife's art, therefore yes. you will. So if you don't, you don't. But there is—is is there not also the sense that he just doesn't quite take her whole idea of being an artist sort of seriously? Yeah. Is that is that yeah. fair? Yeah, yeah. So that's just a thing in him. Yes. And there it is in the book, alongside all the other things about all the other people. And I hope that the book doesn't, or any any book that's that's any good, doesn't really it doesn't go around sort of skewering people on judgment skewers. Mm. It mm. sort of says there's a whole cluster of possible judgments circling around this man and this woman and what they say and what they are and what they do. And they're all in play, but there's no last word. 
Yeah. That's how I kind of feel that writing at its, when it's open and truthful works, because that's sort of how I really perceive judgment works at its best. That and it life. And, and life. That it doesn't close down finally. I mean, obviously there are some people and some acts that it needs to close down on finally and firmly, but, but mostly um, where people are doing their best to get by, to live largely and imaginatively, then there needs to be lots of space around their selves and their acts. Can I ask you about, about Christine, uh, who is our focus, really? I mean, she is, yeah. in, in a sense, our kind of sense. There's a lot more written from her perspective. Yes, yeah. And we kind of go through the whole thing more from her point of view, I think, than anyone mm -hmm. else's. We do. Um, and the fact that she is an artist, and that you picture her almost sort of closing up her studio. And for some reason that you don't, you know, purposely don't articulate precisely, unable to return to it. Not, I think, we, we believe, not simply as a matter of being grief struck, but mm. somehow she separated from her mm. art. Mm. I was terribly interested mm. in, in that portrayal. Mm. I think it's, I mean, it is just that little bit I just read. It happens right at the beginning of the book, that it's obviously the centre of her life in her 50s, whatever her marriage is. And, you know, there are, there are things, if you like, to critique about Christine inside that marriage as well as about Alex. Whatever her marriage is, something has shifted and the centre of things for her is in that room doing that work. And then this death comes, this death of a close and intimate loved friend and somehow makes it impossible what what's happening there and trying to explain that it's I, the relations between somebody's work and their private emotional life are always indirect and complicated mm. and i think there are probably a number of things that could happen to anyone who work painting making films writing there are things that could happen in your private life which simply severed the, the place from which creativity comes and made it seem not, not only inaccessible but actually grotesque. And mm. that's sort of what, uh, so I'm, that's a very interesting thing, the whole relations between the making work of art and the living work of life and how they work together. And that there are things from the life side, if you like, which could just crush at least provisionally it does that that sort of view which you, you you it's so skillful in the book because you don't actually portray her having constant sort of wrestling matches with herself about it it's just there almost like a sort of black hole that studio as soon as i give her that key i've got a very useful thing that i can yes bring up from time to time she sort of moves it from her pocket to her handbag and then at some point she can't even quite remember but she's put it into a pot in the kitchen it's really... It's the key. That's all I need to do is, is just have it, I, I have it a there. I do a bit more than that, obviously. But, but um, have it there. Yeah, have it there. Almost just flickering, flickering on the edges of our... Of she, our yes, because this, this problem that has arisen for her work is not something that can be resolved by thought or let's, let's try and, you know, sort out what's going on here. That, that isn't going to solve it. Who knows what mysterious thing will solve it eventually. But, but it is interesting, isn't it, as I read it, uh, that she is the female artist not entirely kind of licensed by her husband's approval. Mm. She has had other roles in her life, many mm. Um, mm. of them. And that idea that the creativity is not something that actually puts her up on a pedestal where mm. grief or loss or disharmony mm. just knocks off. It can just go like yeah. that. Yeah. She makes less of a case for herself as an artist in a way. That's that's all absolutely right, but it, the book is not a protest about that. No, I think the book no. feels as if that's as it should be, and I can't. I don't know that I can imagine the the woman who would have gone back in the next day and thought, "Oh, let's make a painting about Zachary's death." I, I can imagine her, perhaps, but this seems to me to have some right respect in it, and I don't even mean just respect for Zachary, actually, who, after all, doesn't care. I sort of mean respect for the work, funnily enough. I'm, this 
as we're kind of talking, it's sort of putting me in mind of so many of your other books where you, all sorts of things come up, all sorts of things about um, motherhood, marriage, childbirth, infidelity, politics, sexual politics, larger scale politics, mm. as it were. But you absolutely refuse or choose not to name them, to have them centre stage in a kind of any sort of polemical way. As you just said, this book is not a protest about mm. that. Mm. Um, yeah, protesting the, doesn't ever seem to me a very interesting tone. It seems two-dimensional or one-dimensional. It, it doesn't, it's again, it's like this judgment thing, isn't it? Mm. It's, mm. it's like the difference between skewering things and then you've got a dead thing on a skewer. Instead, let let all your thought circulate, watching and what and seeing things from different angles. That seems this is you know I'm not making here so much of a moral judgment as an aesthetic judgment that it just seems more beautiful and larger to to, to keep everything open rather than make it something into an issue or a protest. But it's very skillful to be able to have these books which are intensely character-led. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say, really, what novel is not character-led, mm -hmm. but the ins and outs, their, their moments of their consciousness, the fluctuations mm -hmm. in their subjectivity, their surroundings, they're all terribly delicate and changeable, aren't they? Um, and seeing your characters exist in, in the time, in the scope of a novel, seems to be often your kind of primary aim. Does, does that feel fair? Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, sort of what I want, what I what I feel hungry to do is to somehow dip into the present moment that we inhabit and and catch enough of it and catch enough detail to to put it on a page. How did we live then, as it were? Except mm. when it's now. But how did? How but did it is they, then. But it is it? then. Yes. Once you've written about it. Yes. Once you've written about it, what what was it like for those? people, those sort of people, to live in that sort of way at that moment. And yet that is full of ideas, because partly because they're thinking people, but it's not just that, it's because they are themselves part of politics and history and, and a conflicted culture. So all of that stuff is arising in the way one tells the story, mm. like stuff about, there's some line where I say, you know, both Lydia and Christine thought of themselves as feminists, but somehow seemed to live inside marriages whose pattern was very like their mother's. Mm. Mm. You know, that, and that, it, that doesn't close down on anything, and it's not, it, it's not like a, it's not an aha moment, it's just one of the many observations that, I think that, I think for a long time I did think that you had to have made up your mind about everything to write properly. And I had a terrible feeling that I hadn't made up my mind about anything and probably in a way never would. I'm, I'm much too persuadable. I am. I, could, I will read a non-fiction book which makes one argument and I will be utterly persuaded and then I'll read the opposite and I'm utterly persuaded. And I used to think that was a real flaw. I still do think it's a real flaw. It's a good job I'm not... An MP or something, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't no, know, actually. actually. With a bit more about. Um, it's a good thing I'm not a surgeon, let's say. But Maybe we'll grant you that. <laughs> Definitely a good thing Decisive I'm not a surgeon. Is, is, yeah. But actually, I think for writing, that's, not a, that's one, way, one way of doing it. But did that, I mean, we've, we've spoken a bit about this before, and, I'm, and, and, you know, it's been something you've talked about a bit. I mean you were priming yourself to write for a long time, weren't you? You know, you didn't write. And then, of course, it feels like this to us. Then there is this flood of these wonderful books. And it probably didn't feel, doesn't feel quite the same to you. But it does was feel it feel a bit flood-like. I should probably slow down. But there you are now. I have to get it done quick before I can't do it anymore. But uh, was it I wasn't a bit... priming myself, as you beautifully say, to write. I was writing extremely bad books, which then didn't, thank God, get published and are all thrown away. But I was work. I was trying to, and I think I was trying to have all those made up. That made up mind. I was faking. That was a made the issue, up mind. That was the crux. I, I haven't think. put it like that to myself before, but as I'm saying it, it sounds plausible for for a moment. Anyway, <laughs> I'll change my mind later. Yeah, that was a part of the issue. I thought I I was reading. I was loving Brecht and 
um, Nadine Gordimer, and I wanted to write with that something of that certainty, though, of course, Gordimer is actually subtle psychological realist. So. But you had sort of, as it were, persuaded yourself that conviction yeah. was the kind of route yeah. to yeah. writing sort of yeah. fully realised yeah. fiction. What changed then? Ah. I, I, I don't quite know. Some watershed moment that was probably a combination of lots of things, but accepting the smallness, accepting the tentativeness, I think, but quite what, what enabled me to accept it at a given moment and realise that was exactly what I had to say. Mm. Uh, it happened. I mean, I went on a writing course. Yes. That, that really, that seemed to, that helped. Not because anyone can teach you to write, but because you're suddenly writing for actual people instead of some theoretical audience. It was a sort of permission. It was a sort of I mean, permission. from fit that you gave yourself yeah. to, to sort of be open about what yeah. you were doing. And maybe not just that I gave myself. Maybe somehow, strangely, people gave me. Yes, yes. And when you started, I mean, it was, as you still write all the time, short stories. Your first book was a kind of linked Hmm. Sort of linked short stories, accidents in hmm. the home, was sort of, um, and you've, I, yeah, you've kind I, of been very interested in the kind yeah. of interplay between these two yeah. forms, yeah. haven't you? I, I mean, I knew I, I sort of felt a breakthrough, and that I could write something that felt like a short story. It had that sprung tension in it, and it was whole, and it held on the page. But I had no idea how to build a novel, which seemed to me such a long, long piece of engineering. How do you know when you start at this end, how you're going to bring it down at the other end? How do you sustain that sloppy bit in the middle? So I just wrote lots of those short story-shaped pieces about the same people in chronological order in my first <laughs> novel and my second novel and my fourth novel, sort of, and my fifth novel. But it's, not here. You but here no. and in the past, my last novel, I feel as if I have the bridge engineering for the first time, which is very exciting. I feel I can do a novel now. Uh, you know, I, for what it's worth, whatever it is, the novels are, I have the sense of how to build it. And you didn't have that before. That amazes me when I think about your novel, Everything Will Be All Right. But that's quite episodic. It's very episodic. Well, I know, but it's not... No, I you, know. It's you know. different, though. It's different. I'd say it had the engineering. Okay. You know, I would. Okay. Oh, I mean, I'm sucking up, so. but I do, it is what I actually think. <laughs> I'm know. very happy with that. Um, but, but think about, I mean, that was really, what, a decade that, ago yeah. that you wrote more, that book? More, more, yeah. um, But thinking about the past, which I'm sure lots of people here have read, it. I mean, again, a wonderful novel, but, and as its title suggests, it does go back into the mm -hmm. past at various points, mm -hmm. sort of, um, and occasionally just once, just, just once. Yeah, just, just once. Just the once. In the middle section. You did a, a, a very, I mean, that was, people in a space mm. that wasn't, kind of wasn't their own exactly, yeah. um, for a very short period of Quite time. Quite theatrical, very, again. I mean, it yeah. could have been a play in a sense. Yeah. I mean, it was... Could have been. It had that kind of play-like thing. Mm. Do you like to set yourself these kind of different challenges? I think it's more a matter that as you're doing the one thing, you have an urge to do the other thing. So, so I conceived of the past, which is all or was originally just going to be in that three weeks in, the, in a house in the country when I was writing Clever Girl, an episodic novel that covers 50 years of a woman's life. And I, I wanted to do the opposite. And I wanted If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We have lots of room to let them converse together and talk together. And so I did, although that produced its own problems and there was a slackness in the middle. So that's when I, as I was writing, decided to do drop back into the 30 years ago and put that middle section in. Um, and I think as I was writing the past with its concentration, I conceived the desire to do another, as it were, one with a long span. So it is this sort of feeling... A slight reaction to the, what the last thing was. This feeling that, okay, the architecture... You've got a sense of this architecture that is exciting and interesting mm. to kind of play with mm. now. Mm. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a little bit about love, uh, which, which there is uh, in this book, lots of. But my goodness, people don't always have a great time being in love in your books. They don't have the worst time either. It's not kind of Anna mm. Karenina. You'll be glad here, but it is. Oh, what, you I'm know. a bit disappointed. Oh God! It's <laughs> like no, a sort of exquisite joking. torture. I, I keep it. disappointing you, but um, that's, I, no, I, you know what I, I mean. Of course, you I do. Know what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah, I, it's true. I, I think I'm not very romantic. I uh, there is lots and lots of love in the book. Lots of it. Yeah. Of the companionable kind, the friendship kind, the parental kind the filial kind, um, but romantic love. I have Lydia, and I, I like Lydia. She's quite bad and heedless, but she believes in it. And in the end, I, I, I don't want to say too much, but I think in the end, Lydia not only sort of gets what she wanted, but it's real. It's real. Mm. She make, if you believe in it, it makes it so. And Christine is hopelessly, probably, she isn't me, but she probably shares my rather feeble capacity for romanticness, which has nothing to do with not love. Or do you mean sort of drama? Do you mean dramatic love? I mean red roses. (laughs) You know, that stuff. And Valentine's Day and, and, and declaring that you can't live without somebody. Yeah. That stuff? Do you know yes, what I mean? I do know what you mean. <laughs> and I think I think the thing is, if you read a lot of novels, that kind of gets knocked out of you. And probably that's just as yeah. true if you write them as well as reading them. I think if you live quite a lot of life, it can get knocked out of you. Unless it's just in you. And if you have it in you, then you probably make it be yes, so. Lydia is just as old as, as, yeah. as the rest yeah, of them. Yeah, and is, yeah, is, she is. is. And she has, and somewhere Alex says to her, when she, when Lydia says, talks about having loved one person all her life long, he says that is an act of will. You have willed it to be so. And she says, how does anybody else live? So I give that possible, uh, there are just that many shades of people. And it's all true when you think it's true. Before we um, before we get some questions from the audience, I'm going to ask you, oh, I suppose a little bit about the title, but what it betokens. Um, this idea of the kind of later acts of life, the bit mm. where you're actually supposed to be set in your mm. in your stone, you're supposed to be mm. in your space with your mm. partner in one way or another. Um, the characters in this book, partly as a result of this trauma, actually mm. cast off that notion yeah. in a way, don't yeah. they? And they they behave, you know as it were, like people much younger than them. Um, but always, I hope, with a consciousness of time's winged chariot behind them. So the writer writing about, I mean, we can look at your books and see you writing about different yeah. times in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it like to write about this kind of sort of middle-aged with just the hint mm. of mm. after middle age mm. coming mm. across the horizon? 
just felt it sort of felt truthful. I mean, my my the evidence of my eyes is that actually all the drama doesn't stop when you reach forty. On the whole, people don't settle down into slippers and retirement home. They they just stuff goes on happening. Stuff happens to people. I've always loved that for for the purposes of story, maybe for the purposes of life as well, but certainly for novels, amazing things happen which force you out of your familiar pattern and your comfort zone. And of course, that's what one can write about. There are actually now I think of it smaller characters. There are two absolutely fantastic mothers-in-law. Mm. In this book, both the mothers-in-law, in completely different ways,、uh, and very, very different people, are kind of terrific. Were they those, these minor characters that you yeah, that you sort of they're, they're fun? I'm glad you like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were fun. I mean, my Czech mother-in-law. I sort of for a while I wanted. To, I think I think Isabel, the granddaughter, does call them Czech、um, granny and English granny.、Uh, But I wanted to make more of that. The Czech one I just made up, but I sort of loved her、yeah. and and thought she was funny and yet believable and real.、Um, yeah, and I made the other one up as well. She isn't that like my mother, but just a little bit, where she's trying to persuade poor Christine that if only she does her hair differently and wears nicer clothes, she, you know, she might be able to get her man back. Actually, I've undercounted the mothers-in-law. Then there's the. The landlady, the pub landlady. Oh, and oh, and of course, I'd forgotten. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. So yes, no, some strong older characters, none of whom show any signs really of of stopping. Do they? No, and not aging really, not, not in that no, way. Not in, no, you know. no. Shall we have some questions from、yeah. from the audience? Yes, I love a I love a quick hand. Yes. yes, but it's but it's it's coming speedily arriving. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I suppose it's a comment and 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 then a question. I really enjoyed the book.、Um, I, I loved the sense of fluidity between the characters, and particularly、um, looking at it from a sense of power play between、mm. the characters. And there's power play from, from the very first page, in, in an almost Jamesian sense. And I, I, I'm aware that you've written a critical text on、uh, James's later novels. That's that's the comment. The question is that I'm now rereading it much more slowly and really enjoying the rereading even more. But I did sort of think,、mm, well, perhaps I'll t- take it as an audible text. And I listened to the five-minute、uh, clip on Audible from Abigail Thor and thought, no, it's a literary novel. It's got to be read. But my question is. What do you think of of the performance of, of the text, and perhaps do you have any、uh, input as the as an author? Well, that's a really it's a really it's good a really question, question, but it slightly catches me unawares in that I don't think I knew it was finished and out there. So I I haven't I haven't. This is just a question about the audible version for anybody kind of right at the back who didn't didn't、yeah. hear, which is read by Abigail Thor.、Okay. Yeah. Who I what what they do on the whole is send me three or four, five or six people who I who I choose the one that sounds best to me, and I often don't necessarily know those voices. They send me some clips of them reading different things, and I choose one. I think they always go with my choice. I mean, they've obviously pre-selected people who they think will be good. So, I don't. I I, I can remember with a past、uh, with another novel, London Train, listening into a bit of one of the audios and being a bit appalled by the extravagant accents. I think when the poor actress has to read all these hours of your book, they sort of entertain <laughs> themselves by. So anyone I've mentioned came from Birmingham was sort of talking like. You know, a th- with a thick Brummie accent, and anyone I'd mention from Yorkshire, even if they were a lecturer in French, was sort of speaking. <laughs> so that slightly disconcerted me, and I, I don't. I feel the truth is that I feel funny about it. I am delighted for it to be done. I can't think of anything more wonderful. And once, you know, I love it that people are listening to. So many books and listening in the car and listening on their headphones and everything. So I'm wholly for it. But because I've written the words, I know 
how I want the sentence to be inflected. And actually, it's happened to me even there's something they did in America where I was doing talking about the book, and they have an actress. She was super. She was brilliant. But it was still. I, I kept thinking, oh no, not not like that, because I've got it inside my head how it should sound. But I I don't think that's very relevant to the end result. That's just me because I'm because I wrote it. Do you listen to to, to other books? But you're not a, an audio I'm not actually, listener. No. But I love it that it's there, so that if ever I can't read horror of horrors, then I can listen. It doesn't somehow go into your brain in the same way, of course, but I does think it? One I mean, it is a different brain. thing. One could train yeah. one's brain. I know you could. Mm. Know and you you've could. never been tempted to read your own audio? They've never asked me. It would be quite <laughs> a long haul, wouldn't it? I think I, I believe it takes it some, take. a long time, yeah. I think. But, yeah. you know, some writers yeah. do. I do love to I love to read, so maybe I should suggest myself. I don't know. I'm wary, Actually, you, I mean, you have read, when I think about it, you have read. I read because the short you read stories. the short stories for the New Yorker podcast. Whenever there's a short yeah. story in the New Yorker now, they want you to, to read it and put it on a podcast. So I do. I read the stories very happily. I saw... Um, Tessa at something a while ago and I said God I went to sleep listening to you last night and it was a really disconcerting <laughs> thing to say and I don't know why no I said it but I did I wasn't offended good I like the thought of it um, yes so just halfway down and then there's somebody right at the back we'll come to you after we'll make our Thank way you down so much. ladies um, I think your writing is absolutely exquisite and uh, and when I read you, I think of of great female writers of the past, like Iris Murdoch, Elizabeth Bowen, Elizabeth Taylor, who's kind of sticking out of the bookshelf over there. Um, but and and you know, your writing is so influenced by you know by the past. Couldn't you give us your three kind of most formative female writers? Uh, it would be undoubtedly Elizabeth Bowen, who is probably. Nobody has a favourite writer. It would be ridiculous to have a favourite writer, and how could it not be Tolstoy or Chekhov or somebody? But maybe it is Elizabeth Bowen. Do you know I'm going to say something so ridiculous? I think Elizabeth Bowen is is every bit as great as Henry James, and I love Henry James. And I just, I, I really have been testing that thought because it's a, it's a sort of forbidden thing to say, but I think it's real. Oh, and there are things she doesn't do that James does, but there are things he doesn't do that she does. So I love Elizabeth Bowen. I, at the moment, I'm loving Mavis Gallant, the wonderful Canadian short story writer. I, she, I find, is like a pure adrenaline shot in the veins. It's, it's marvellous stuff. So, so unsocky. <laughs> it's like just in case you were tempted for one moment she's and and she in a tiny story that is in one sense exquisitely lyrical can sum up the entire politics of post-war Europe in the 1950s and yet it's just a tiny story about a Canadian no good drifter working for the UN how can she do that so, so she's a superb writer um Oh, three. I don't know where... And I, it would have to be Alice Munro, who, who was a sort of gateway. She was the writer I... She was the writer I read and thought, mm. ah, ah, I see. You can take this small thing and it's big. She was... I, I loved and still loved Gordimer, but, but that wasn't useful to me. That's one has a funny sort of relation... You know, there are some writers who... You, who are useful. Um, they are much, much more than that, of course, and, and one's love of their books comes first, but also they help you to write. And she was the first. But actually, I, I don't think I... I don't, she's got a, a marvellous loose weave to her sentences that are nothing like what I do. I probably... My sentences sound a little bit more like Bowen's, but in saying that, I blush because I she her ah I was just reading her today. I have her often beside me while I write, and I was just reading this little short story and some of the things in those sentences that one can't even remember afterwards, and yet they're sublimely good. The mention of Iris Murdoch there, 
Yeah, I'm I, not a mad fan of Morris Murdoch. It hasn't ever done I, it for me. This might be your most Murdoch book in a way. So, so people it, tell but me, less I mad, just read less some bonkers. more. Okay, yeah, less I've never got on really, with it. I don't know. like it. Okay, I love the Mar Margaret Drubble. The, the Millstone is a beautiful little book. Perhaps that's my favourite of hers. But lots and lots of hers. She's marvellous. Thank you. We had a question just there. Thank you. I've only named women. That wasn't a sort of feminist point. Of course, there are loads of men who's. I we love John about, Updike. You talked about Henry James a little and, bit. And I didn't, did. I yeah, did. did. But only to put him down. <laughs> no, not to put him down at all, but to elevate Elizabeth Byrne and say, I thought she was his Hi. Um, thanks very much for the book. I thought it was great. Uh, I was just wondering, you mentioned your notebooks, and it sort of mm. made me curious about what your writing routine is like and whether you how, how many stories you're kind of... Um, baking as you're as you're you know going about your daily life um, and yeah and just you know what time you do your writing when how you fit it into your to your life I just write whenever I can which really means on all the days I'm not doing something else and there seem to there are quite a lot of days when I am doing something else but when I can I do it because I love to do it and I probably write for about between three and four hours because that's about the maximum you can sustain it for I feel um, and I I write straight onto the computer really but I always have a notebook open and the notebook has a double function it's become so vain to think anyone would be interested in this because it's sort of ridiculous but anyway as you've asked I'll tell you so in the back there might be plans and and ideas for a story or ideas for a novel that's exactly what I was putting down in there today but at the front it's a working book that's open beside the computer and something really weird goes on that like so I'm stuck for the next bit and then I'm trying out things now why can't I try them out on the computer I don't quite know but it's as if that's a pre a pre-writing place so there's a lot of scribbled words sometimes lots of words trying for the same thing over and over or lots of phrases trying for the same thing and then then I'm putting it on the computer but of course I'm not that isn't then I'm then playing with that too and I will also have another file on the computer called extras where when I'm taking chunks out thinking oh my God, that's horrible. I put it in there in case I change my mind. <laughs> it doesn't seem so horrible the next It sometimes the next doesn't. Day. It sometimes it doesn't. doesn't. And, is, and are those extras sometimes also things that aren't horrible, but you think, yeah. this is a lovely little scene yeah, but or it's vignette, it's but not, it, it's, it's not the working The rhythm's here. wrong. I, mm. It's distracting us. Absolutely. It often is that, actually. And mm. they just have to... We just have to go. They have to go. Yeah. Um, there was a question right at the back in the... Hi. I discovered your work on The New Yorker, and I fell in love with your stories. Um, I'm focusing on writing short stories myself, and you've been one of the writers that have been useful to me in finding my voice, as well as, as you said, there's writers that you love, but they're not doing what you would like to do. Um, whereas you focus on family relationships and making the ordinary extraordinary, like sort of simple everyday life or something like unclogging a drain and the beauty in that. Which, which I love. Um, I was wondering if you have any advice for a novice writer or someone emerging in their writing, as well as how to go about finding a mentor. Advice for a novice Advice for writer. a novice writer who's writing short stories. I mean, and finding a mentor, it's probably just the obvious thing, which is to do a good writing course, to go on an MA like I did because you will find exactly that, if you're lucky, if it works. Um, and it's very good, because it's, it's also like a kind of super editing. So you've got an editor who's working with you, even as you're finding your way, and it speeds up all the things you would painfully slowly learn by yourself. Having someone say, oh dear, that bit's boring or something is, is really useful. <laughs> uh, that bit's boring is, is a huge revelation. And that used to happen to me when I thought, I'm writing this tonight, and on Thursday, those seven people are going to read it. And then I would look at it and think, but my God, it's, that's boring and that's pretentious. It was wonderful. Why couldn't I do that when it was just by myself? Isn't that funny? Real people sharpen one's mind. 
So that's a part of it. And the other thing is, keep reading and keep doing it. That's not very helpful, is it? <laughs> I don't know that I do. You you just have to keep trying, and and then go on a course. Yes, <laughs> that was not at all illuminating, but it's probably the truth. There, there's no single way. One of the things you realize it. I teach creative writing. One of the things you realize is that there are no prescriptions. What there is is that story there. This is what needs to be done. That novel there. Ah, maybe that. There, there just are not many blanket prescriptions or formulae. There aren't any. There's all kinds of stuff you can be, be encouraged to think about about voice and structure and tone. And, and and point of view, which sounds like a technicality, but turns out to be very fundamental. We haven't talked about that at all, but I do. I swap mm. the point of view around between my protagonists, but much more than that, I also avail myself of omniscience quite a lot, and I watch all of them, and I watch them in a way that not no one of them could see. I see the mm. four of them together, and that seems to me a resource in in narrative that is a really rich one, if you like it, if it's your thing. And it's also one of those extraordinary techniques, isn't it? Because you don't announce to us, the reader, that you're going to switch from... No. You know, now happened. we're going to, and this is me knowing everything. That doesn't... We really know don't know. It's what like you've a trick. What you got to do, this is something that crops up with students, if you are going to do that, you've got to do it early on. You can't mm. write from one perspective till page 72 and then suddenly shock everybody by becoming omniscient and seeing everybody. You, it's part of the contract you have to establish quite early on with your yeah. book. Yeah. Unless you have different sections in which you do it from the perspective of different people. That's, that works. So then it's all about the formal all, announcement, isn't it? In it, then a way. it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Exactly that. Um, it's a question there, and I know there's one that We'll take this gentleman first, because I think he... He, oh, my goodness. Hello. Sorry, hello. Hi, Tessa. Hello. Um, hi. hi. Really, really enjoyed your book. Um, and something that I've been dying to know, actually, is um, there struck me as like quite a, a lack of remorse, I, I feel, in the book from Christine and Alex. And I think, um, sorry, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone. Um, and for Alex, it made a lot of sense, I think. Um, uh, but for Christine, um, I, was, I was just... I, 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 surprise and I wondered if that was deliberate on your part that you know in, in talking about this sort of the messiness of life and the messiness mm. of these characters mm. was that quite deliberate on your part it's funny one of my students I, I, I was in Bath a couple of days ago said did you write 50 pages of Christine's agonized remorse and tear them up or something <laughs> I, ah does that just reveal some terrible moral absence. <laughs> I, I feel uh, that it's very difficult to answer you without spoiling the story. I feel stuff happens and it passes and it's almost as if it never happened. I feel that, it, I mean, how you take the things you've done morally. Again, I suppose I'm coming back to that business about romantic love. It's what you make of it. And that could, that what you're referring to, could have been the occasion for a lot of agonised conscientiousness. But people are extraordinary and they could just step on to the next day and leave it. And... I I didn't feel I didn't feel that she felt she she knew it must never be found but I didn't feel she felt she had offended some profound moral law inside herself and I'm not a, I'm not a total moral relativist I'm not saying there isn't a moral law in the sexual arena, it's a complicated one. And so I, I have to admit that I just thought she might step on and leave it behind. With a little, you know, she's a little, she's aware. She has that conversation with Lydia in the concert. 
which touches it. And another one on the stairs. There are a couple of occasions when we, we come near something like what she's done with that story. And I think it's partly because when they were young, she, there was that connection. That, that changes something. I'm talking very enigmatically and slightly, sort of, perhaps, it doesn't make any sense to those who haven't read the book yet. Does that kind of answer it? Can you forgive me? <laughs> you know the awful thing? Now I feel like you've told me a terrible truth about myself because I heard your question and your answer and thought, well, she didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> God, yes, sir. I, couldn't, I wasn't even... I I'm afraid, yeah. talking about. I'm afraid it's another a question vaguely related to judgment, but I think, uh, that's but also, I, that's ab what we're doing tonight. Uh, about it's about sort of the way in which you dealt with different generations, because mm. as well as the four main characters that we've talked about a lot here, you've also got you've got the young Isabel and Grace and mm. Sandy and Blaze, and then you've got the younger versions of the four main characters. Um, mm. Were you sort of very conscious of how they judged each other? You know, even if we're not talking about sexual judgment judgment and so on and so forth. Um, did you have, you, have you, have your children read these books and what do they think about them? <laughs> my, my children, some of my children read, I've got three sons and one of them's very bookish and he, he likes my books. My middle one reads one Ian rank in a year and is deeply suspicious of what might be in my books. Fears it and has probably guessed right, guessed exactly the thing that the last question was about. Um, and my oldest son is m much more a history and politics man. But he, okay, he said something really funny many years ago. There was a, some emotional crisis in his life. And he sort of said, I suppose I'd better read one of mum's books to find out. <laughs> um, so, ah, uh, yes. I mean, they do, the, the children in this book are deeply appalled. Well, some of them, two of them, Isabel and Sandy, are deeply appalled by what their parents are getting up to. I rather love Grace, who says, if it makes them happy. And I, I think those two possibilities are both real. I'm, I'm really interested in the generations. And as her mother is sort of telling her that she should, you know, put on more makeup. And Christine's mother telling him and dress up to get her man back. And all, all of both psychology of different individuals comes into play, but also the anthropology of the generations and what each generation, as it were, believes about couples and sexual identity and sex and marriage. So to me, it's just a sort of very rich terrain for telling stories from. Claire, you've, you've, you've rushed to the front. The lady. Oh, I thought you were pulling us off with a kind of big shepherd's crook. Oh, no, no, oh the lady in green. Oh, the lady in green. Sorry. <laughs> so thank you very. Thank you. I, I love the book. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, and Elizabeth Bowen, yes, hundred um, percent. I have a question, and you may feel inhibited from answering it because it would be a, like a spoiler, but I was very interested that you picked up at the beginning of your discussion about the, the studio and talking mm, mm, it up, mm. and I love the way that you, there's no big explanation about why that should be, there's no big cause and effect, it's just something that she does. But I wondered if, as you also revealed that you wrote that, what we read is pretty much what you set down initially. So did you have a resolution to that mm. in your mind Good when you question. fixed that early on? Yes. Because I, uh, okay. Okay. I did. Uh, I don't always have the... I, uh, mm. I knew that once you, at the beginning of a book, have somebody turning a key on a room and shutting it up and putting the key in their pocket, you have... That's one of the pieces of engineering that makes a novel and that you're going to do something with that key. Finally, I mean, she, she could drop it down a drain mm -hmm. in the street and go and be a nurse <laughs> or something else. Okay. So I did know that. But, but however, actually, the way I wrote the ending is um, a very interesting example of how messy and flawed novels are because 
people can intervene at a late stage with your novel and make it better. I, I had it ending one way. I actually had it, uh, uh, not no difference, by the way, about that thing you've just talked about, but it ended with, how oh, am I going to say this without, it, it ended domestically with Christine and her daughter together. Not, you know, the actual ingredients, not so very different. And my American publisher said, actually, it's fine, but it's too domestic. Do do something better. And she was right. I'm so pleased with my ending as I as it is now. And that isn't that interesting. That didn't. I mean, it came from me. I I solved it. I found the new thing. But that was her push. Yeah. Well, now we've talked about the ending. Perhaps it's. I want to say first of all, when I said I didn't like the characters, oh, no, Alex, I'm going I back. don't mind. No, I, but I think I like not liking things. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? We know what we. Also, can I just say something about the frittata? The reason I remember... <laughs> I make a really good frittata and I I've never do. thought about it as a very posh food. No, it wasn't that it was posh. It was that who would have the kind of wherewithal in a crisis to think, I'm going to make a frittata. But the, the reason easiest. I remember it... Yes. It's easy, but you know what I mean. You know I have to tell you something about Alex. She isn't a very good cook. <laughs> I've never eaten your food, but you told me the story of your Christmas cake once. That's different. Not being able to make a Christmas cake is really... Oh, I right, don't So maybe think. you are a good cook. Are you? Not for me to say. So she doesn't know that a frittata is a common or no, I do. Thing. The thing that I remember about the frittata, I'm saying, this is why it's stuck in I'm my mind, teasing. is that the character, in great emotional distress and anxiety, makes a frittata and then sprinkles salt on it, and it's and the lemon salt juice. And lemon, lemon juice and salt that makes I remember it so much better. In defence of my character, she makes the frittata at a very early stage, before she's in any distress and anxiety. Oh, she's God, just waiting for him to come back. In my version, yeah, she's, no, you know, she makes beating it furiously. calmly and cheerfully, and the angst develops post-frittata. <laughs> I am very, very grateful to the London Review of Books audience, by the way, for handling in a way that would never happen on, say, you know, social media, obviously, um, the business of spoilers. Because they've just been so, you wouldn't say delicate. That thing that happens <laughs> that thing. when somebody, etc., and then they might not like the other person. Is a, You've been marvellous, but I sense just this incredible engagement with Tessa's work, which is as it should be. Tessa, as ever, a complete joy to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Claire, for having us here. Thank you, Claire. And thank you, everybody Alex. at thank the LLB. Bookshop, and you're going to sign out, but you're going to you're going to say you're going to tell me what to do, aren't you? No, I literally want to thank you all for coming, for your uh, comments, contributions, and questions, and most of all, ask you to help me thank Alex Clark and Tessa Hadley. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk/events.